everybody, and welcome to episode two of Import This, a podcast for humans. This is our first biannual episode. As you may have noticed, we have not published an episode in the last two years. Uh, and that is because I don't need a reason. Um, <laughs> this may be a relaunch, it may not be. Effectively, last time uh, we did the show, um, I spent about 10 hours editing the audio to get it to the to approach Radio Lab quality. Uh, and I was very happy with the results, but when it came to do that a second or a third time, um, I just didn't have the uh, stamina to continue doing that. Um, so now there's a new experiment, which is to continue the show and just kind of record a conversation with, uh, with our co-host and just upload it, you know, kind of do the opposite of what I was doing before. So we'll see how that goes. And uh, Alex Gainer is out sick today, uh, and apparently will be for the foreseeable future. So filling in for him today is the venerable um, Eric Holscher. Hi, Eric. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good. I'm having a good day so far. <laughs> How about you? I'm doing great. I'm honored to be on this uh, what biannual episode. You know, maybe it'll it'll be the hopefully it won't be the next one for the. Of the next two years, or, or the last one. Yeah, next one's 2018. Try to get two in per election cycle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so Eric and I are from the same hometown, basically. They're two tiny little towns that are right next to each other, but, you know, to the rest of the world, the same hometown. Uh, I live in Winchester, Virginia. Uh, he is from Berryville, which is like a 10, 15-minute drive, yeah. but now resides... In Portland, Oregon. But I do. I still love berries, so it's a, <laughs> it's a it's a great place to come from. Even though you know there's actually better berries out here in the in the Willamette Valley than in Virginia, but they still do do good stuff in Berryville. <laughs> and do you still enjoy farms? I do. The they're very the Shenandoah Valley, uh, you know, in Virginia, and then the Willamette Valley in Oregon actually are very very similar in a lot of ways. So yeah. Um, let's see. So we have a few topics we want to discuss, uh, but this is basically going to be very ad hoc. We don't really know what, what's going to happen. Anything <laughs> could happen. Uh, oh, I, I released my album this week. I, I make electronic music on the side, and uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, not that it'll have any impact on my life or anything like that. Uh, I'm not trying to make money off of it. I'm giving it away for free. I just uh, it just feels like an accomplishment. It's like pushing an open source project um, up on GitHub and releasing it, basically. So uh, if you want to listen to that, if you're interested, it's up on. Uh, you can go to my website, and there's information about it there. Nice. How about you, Eric? Do you listen to music? I do listen to music. I was actually just at a at a music festival last weekend that was all kind of like bluegrass and. Uh, oh really? Yeah, it's called the the Northwest String Summit. Nice. Um, yeah, I would yeah, like was... to go to a bluegrass uh, event. That's like I don't like uh, country music, but bluegrass is pretty pretty good. Yeah, exactly. And they've gone a little bit more electronic with it these days, right? Where it's oh, kind really? of, yeah. So you have you know like you have like a fiddle and a banjo and a mandolin and a guitar and you know somebody maybe doing a stand up bass and it's uh, yeah it's really there was a whole kind of range of genres with those kind of set of instruments as the bass and it was it was really cool. That's awesome. Huh. Yeah. yeah, I haven't been to a, like a show 
in a long time. I walk up and down the walking mall here in Winchester every day, and they they do all kinds of little mini concerts out there, so I see those. But I haven't like attended a proper show unless I was in one in quite, quite some time. Nice. I don't just, really like live music unless I'm performing. <laughs> is it just like or, people people out busking or whatever? Well, there's that every day, but um, I actually tried that recently, and that was fun. <laughs> I, I was I was uh, I had a little sign and it was like giving all money to charity, and I had like a, a synthesizer and speaker out, and nice. this guy this guy came up to me and wanted to pray for me, put his hands all over me, <laughs> and then asked me if I had a place to stay, and I was. Mildly offended, just you know, he's being nice, but I like that means that he thought that everything I had just said was a lie, you know. Right. <laughs> so, uh, I was just. Uh, but, yeah, it uh, sounds sounds like a new funding model for open source. <laughs> busking. <laughs> That's a great idea. Like, well, um, you actually just while you write open source code, just learn how to play an instrument, and then uh, you know, go out on the street and beg for yeah, money. But- we have an amphitheater, and uh, there's a big set of steps in front of, like, this old... I think it's an old courthouse or something. It's a museum now. Mm-hmm. And uh, bands go up there, and they, they, they travel in, and they do stuff all the time. So it's kind of cool. But it's nice, because I can just walk up, watch for three minutes, and then leave, which is what right. I would love to do at most concerts. <laughs> but, you, you know, you get, you're stuck there for... Yeah, most gotta... rock concerts have been... I, I think they take 10 hours. You know, it's, if it's a big production. Uh, well, you have to go there, like like drive to like some big amphitheater and get in, wait in line, and you know. yeah, you get, you get there early, and then you get in, and they have the there's like two openers, and then there's the main one, and then you want to hang out afterwards because you want to get a glimpse of the band when they leave, and you know it's like it's this big ordeal. I had a chance to see Tool in, when I was in San Francisco um, couple, several months ago. I've never seen them, and they're one of my favorite rock bands. Oh, nice, and. Um, I decided to go with my team to do a room escape game instead uh, because I wanted to be a part of the team. And mostly I just didn't want to stand around a bunch of screaming Tool fans because I don't, I don't think I like most of them. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen Tool a couple times. <clears throat> I'm jealous. Yeah, I saw them in Richmond in like 2005. I think I went, went with my brother. But, uh, but yeah, it was a good... It's definitely a crazy show. Yeah, and they're good musicians. Yeah. I, I love their drummer. Yeah. Um, He's just insane. I have his face, but I can't think of his name right now. I usually know it. <laughs> All right. Well, should we, should we start talking about some kind of technology here? Yeah. Um, so let's see here. Uh, claims to fame. Uh, the two of us together are... Uh, not well known for creating the positive Python hashtag, yeah, and and the IRC channel, which is on Freenode, and everyone is welcome to join. Hashtag, did I really just do that? Pound positive Python. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I think it's officially called a hashtag now. I think the, I think that ship has sailed. It's over. Um, yeah, but at Best Buy, this kid w- was writing my address in for some reason. And he called it the hashtag symbol, yep. like in an address. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, actually, I archived the great um, Positive Python experiment on, uh, it's still online at positivepython.org as well. I didn't, wait, we have a website? There is a website. <laughs> I didn't know about this. <laughs> what? Oh, maybe it is, what is it? I'm sure it, I just forgot. It's basically, it's just a basically a 
a um, just a, an image and then a Twitter export archive. <laughs> oh, of all the tweets, I had no idea that you did this. Yeah, that's awesome. So it was basically just a I, I took a Twitter search because Twitter didn't actually have export, so I just did like a Twitter search and just hit spacebar a million times to actually, <laughs> <laughs> you know, scroll down the like. I think I never counted exactly, but it's a few hundred tweets. Um, it was just kind of this uh, explosion of, of love uh, in the Python community that was was pretty amazing. Every once in a while, I'll do a tweet with Positive Python and like hope that maybe people start doing it, but it never catches on again. I don't know how to repeat that. Yeah, well, I think it's just one of those things, you know? Like, how does who knows how, how the internet works? <laughs> you went viral. Yeah, exactly. Um... um but yeah, we also have a an IRC channel. There were some like uh, pretty ubiquitous within a very small group of people um, IRC channels that were uh, used just to discuss random stuff during the day, and for for Python and for mm-hmm. specifically more like web oriented Python. And uh, there's just a lot of of negativity in those rooms. Basically, like you'd have a, a small group of people that would just come in and complain about the stuff they're working on uh, all day, and they kind of use it as like their ranting room, uh, or you know, just complaining about different software. And uh, that's great. Like that's that's actually I think one of the main uses of IRC. But <laughs> <laughs> Twitter before we, Twitter was cool. Yeah, exactly. And so we thought it'd be a good idea to create a room where that's just specifically, you know, for positive interactions only. So that's what the positive Python room is for. Well, yeah, and I think there's just so much. I mean, I see tweets every once in a while, right, where it's like, you know, don't talk shit on stuff you don't like, just promote the stuff you do like. And, you know, <laughs> this whole kind of <clears throat> worldview, right, of like, like, there's already so much negativity that surrounds us and, you know, when you release open source code in the world or you just deal with these communities and you just have to deal with people just talking shit pretty, pretty frequently. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be reminded that, you know, Hey, what if we, you know, what if we were actually just nice to each other? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard. It's easy to forget sometimes that, you know, these aren't like products that are made by companies necessarily. These are individuals that are, putting something out there and you don't know where they are in their life or what's going on with them, what made them make that piece of code. Uh, so it's, there's nothing wrong with criticizing a piece of code, obviously, but there just needs to be, in my opinion, um, but I, I want to say a tastefulness about criticizing, but you know, like a consideration for like, you know, some, that might be the only thing anyone's ever said about that thing <laughs> and they're going to read it, you know? So that's what I'm sensitive about, because I know when I was getting started writing code and publishing it, you know, just like any little piece of feedback was just like huge. And luckily for me, it's been almost all positive. Um, But when you do get that negative feedback and it's okay when it's like constructive negative feedback. Right. uh, There's a big difference between constructive negative feedback and just simply negative feedback. Well, or just people just being like, this thing sucks. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's like, well, how how do I address this issue, you know? And and yeah, no, I I totally agree that you know, having giving giving people actionable feedback that actually, you know, is like, hey, I have this use case or I need this to happen or or this doesn't work for me because of this and here's how, you know, and and you know, offering to help or at least, you know, being cordial <laughs> in the in the interaction, right? Instead it's just like, oh, I just got a 140 character tweet 
it said uh, my stuff is no good. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a that's a rule I have in, on my projects. They only that's my code of conduct basically is be cordial or be on your way. Mm-hmm. Because you know you have a lot of people that'll come in and they're trying to do something for their job usually, and they're really frustrated that they can't, and then they're just like really rude and nasty, and uh, you know just have to point them to that, and then they turn real nice all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's the thing is you know similar to not knowing where the person who you're criticizing is in their life. You know, somebody just spent six hours trying to get your product to work for some work deadline or. You know, like a lot of that does come from people who are frustrated or, or something, but it's just trying to remember, you know, that we're all, we're all doing the best we can. <laughs> yeah. Something else I noticed with, uh, that I learned early on as people started interacting with my projects was, um, sometimes someone will come across as being really terse and rude. Uh, and really what's happening is English is not their first language sure. and they don't intend to, uh, to have that tone because they don't, they don't, no, that <laughs> that's the tone they're using. Um, so that's something that I've seen like a lot of like little mini fights break out and stuff. Uh, and the culprit was basically, you know, not fluent English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just something to be aware of if you're doing open source stuff. Totally. And I think that's one of those things as well Is I wish there was a better way or kind of a better culture of, of, introducing people to those interaction models. Um, Because, you know, with the the conferences that we do with uh, Write the Docs, um, I'm super explicit. Kind of at the beginning of the event, you get up on stage and you get to talk to everybody and you get to kind of set expectations, right? But there's no kind of like, for open source, right? When somebody gets a GitHub account, they don't get like a little intro video that's five minutes long. But, you know, like, like, Here's like the how the Scientology video. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's like, you know, welcome to GitHub. Remember, everyone here is human. And you know, like, um, but no, like kind of like setting those expectations. Um, and I think there's a lot of different norms and different communities um, around what's acceptable and, you know, what what is or isn't, you know, kind of good behavior. And it, I really do wish there was a better way of kind of setting expectations with someone who's kind of coming into your project and. I know GitHub has some little little things like the contributing files that, you know, kind of get yeah, a little a lot of work to provide infrastructure to enable uh, project maintainers to, you know, share their perspective on that stuff. Yeah, but it's, I just think people aren't in that 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 headspace, right? They're just like, I want I'm either pissed off at this project or I just want something to happen. I'm filing this issue. I'm not going to, you know. It's it's harder harder to create kind of a a positive environment yeah. within an issue tracker. What I found interesting is I, I feel like you know well op, the open source community to me is kind of at the forefront of how to deal with online interactions mm-hmm. um, and, and innovation in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the whole world is moving more and more digital, but we've been doing this longer than anybody collaborating remotely with each other and building software, um, since, you know, we, we've been doing it since it was possible. Um, so I really do believe we're like at the very precipice of figuring this stuff out for the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. um, which is really cool. Um, and I, you know, you can see there's a culture that you and I are a part of, like on Twitter and stuff where you can kind of see um the the first word that comes to mind is political correctness i i think there's a better word for that but there's there is there is a political correctness within the spheres that are always moving and always changing mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm not using that term negatively. Um, that is that is encouraging positive change in in these areas, right? Where it's like, you know, positivity in your interactions with people, code of conduct at conferences, potentially code of conduct with projects. Some people want to do. Um, some people think that should be ubiquitous. Some don't. Uh, <laughs> Um, and then, yet, you know, the one that I've seen come up recently a little bit is an interesting thing I, I want to discuss. And that's, um, you know, there's different spheres of, of, of these little mini cultures, basically. And, you know, we're talking about having positive interactions. Um, I feel like a big part of programmer culture is identifying with the tools that you use. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, being like PHP sucks is like kind of a part of that, right? Uh, or has been. And that's something that's being brought into question right now uh, or over the last couple of years where it's like, hey, guys, let's not language bash. Or, hey, hey, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I say guys? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's fine. That's what I say. If I was typing, I would I would have. If I was typing to programmers, I would have written folks. It's, um, it's funny. I, I context switch like that as well, where if, if I'm in a professional context, I know that that's an expectation. Yeah. But within broader society, that that expectation does not exist. Yeah. If I'm talking to like a group of musicians, if I say folks, they're like, what the fuck's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. And I think that is, it is a really interesting thing, right? That the Python community and the Django communities are definitely kind of at the, at the forefront of a lot of these issues, you know, with Python having, you know, done so much good diversity outreach and, you know, just really kind of trying to set, set community norms that are much more kind of progressive than the average. And I, I find that to be such a such a such a compelling reason to be part of the Python community is it actually influences my progressiveness. I live in Portland, and I feel <laughs> like I feel like in some ways the Python community is more progressive. Right? <laughs> um, That's something that I find interesting too, because there's you know as an observer from mostly the Python perspective, and I, I work at Heroku on a team. You know, I'm a language owner of Python, and the, all the other members of my part of the team are from other communities. And so, you know, we get in interesting discussions about this stuff. And to, mm -hmm. to me, it seems as a Python has this stuff figured out on a level that other languages don't. And I'm not putting Python above. We have lots of shortcomings. Uh, but, you know, I, I guess I am too at the same time. We, we should be proud of what, what we've done. I think we've done a good job. If, if there was a lot of stuff that has happened in specifically the Ruby community around the topics that we just discussed. Um, and it's, and it was, it was kind of pretty dramatic and intense and it's, it's all settled down now. Um, but you know, Python had done that stuff already and like, we never have, we never had that issue when we did it. They made you know it, I mean? they made it look easy. Yeah, exactly. And it's interesting because each time it goes to another language, it gets more intense because they're solving, they have different issues than we do, you mm -hmm. know? Um, when ar arguably we were kind of the closest, like from the start, right? And so it was, a, there was a natural progression with, you know, we have people like, you know, Jacob Kaplan Moss leading Django and he's very kind of oriented in those directions. And I think, you know, Guido leading Python wearing, you know, the, Coding is for girls shirt on stage, you know. Like, yeah. like I mean, it, like it, it, it really is kind of from the top. The community, the leaders, really kind of espouse these these worldviews, and I think that made it super easy, right? Nobody's going to go against people from the top, and when you're you're trying to do more of a bottom up type of change, 
Um, yes, that's very true. It's it's a lot harder than having kind of the the top leading the way there. And, and I think Django, especially, they just I think just today actually they released like a, a a code of conduct GitHub repo that has a bunch of information around how they do code of conduct incident responses and transparency reporting and all this stuff. And you know they're really taking that next step from you know we have this piece of paper to how do you actually you know execute on that into turning that into a, something that affects your community and and is actually a valuable resource, not just, you know, a piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've also seen that happen in a different uh, field. I'm, I'm, I just forgot what it was. One second. Um, yeah, well, the code of conducts were adopted in the Ruby community. Oh, and Node.js, uh, they have a lot of issues with um, IP mm-hmm. specifically uh, and, like, foundation stuff that we've... We have solved very well, I think. Uh, and it's it's really fascinating to see these other communities. It seems as though they're stumbling and fumbling. Um, but again, that's that's my Python perspective. <laughs> they might they have different issues than we do. Well, but, yeah. You know, like NPM is owned by this company and another part of it is owned by this. And there's these intellectual property um, problems and there's no foundation governing the project. And it's, uh, it's one of those things that... I feel like it's really easy to get right. Like we have, we have the PSF that owns all the IP of Python itself and it has a bunch of money and its only job is to make sure that it doesn't go away basically. (laughs) Yeah. And and I think, I mean, I think the node folks did eventually end up with a foundation. Um, Did did one get founded? Yeah. yeah, I think there was like a a node foundation. Um, Good. 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 All right. They went, they like went through a fork. They went through a, a fork. And you know, there was the whole IOJS thing, and I mean, like there was there was a lot, a lot there that <laughs> that that happened, right? That we just take for granted. Where yeah. in, in the Python community, it's like, what? There's not this organization that just gives diversity grants to every <laughs> conference and and builds these communities, and you know, um, there is. Um, I didn't meet anyone this year at PyCon, um, but I think two or either two years ago or three years ago, I met uh, like at least a handful of Ruby developers who um, didn't really even write Python, but they were at the conference because they appreciated our values and our culture and they wanted to be a part of it. Totally. Yeah. Kind of having the the social issues highlighted in the schedule, you know, really does highlight the values of the community. And I think, I think PyCon's done a really amazing job with that. Um, and, and DjangoCon as well. I think this year it's going on right now, actually. And, you know, yeah, I, I I'm see it. Yeah, yeah, you're not even that far away. I, I had, you know, plans with a girlfriend last weekend, but <laughs> um, you're just right down the road. No, I'm, I'm taking a break from conferencing. I, I went to too many la- uh, last four years. Yeah. I made a list. It's on my website uh, of all the <laughs> places I went for from 2011 to last year, and it's just obnoxious. Uh, I, I only do like three or four a year, and I already find that a little bit overwhelming. So. <laughs> Yeah, that would have that's that's like a good number. I can do that. I'm doing like probably two or three a year now. Yeah. But um, we'll see. But yeah, but I saw and I know DjangoCon last year, I think all the keynotes were were lady um were you know, uh, women in the communities. Uh whether they're associated with PyLadies or, or whatnot. Uh, and this year I think two of two of them were you know, two of the keynotes were doing outreach stuff and, you know, really kind of putting putting their money where their mouth is in terms of, you know, kind of having that content at the conference is, is important. Ooh, I should do a short word from our sponsor. 
I'm just kidding. There's no sponsor, <laughs> but it, you just reminded me. I, um, so I, I believe in August, uh, the Hitchhiker's Guide to Python, which is a project that I started yeah. and that is hosted on uh, Read the Docs. I always get them confused, Read the Docs and Write the Docs. So I had to think about that. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, it's a documentation website that is intended to make it easy for an experienced Python developer to like go access a different part of Python than they normally do. Uh, and kind of get the best practices or for a complete beginner to do the same thing effectively. Um, and it's been really successful. It's been written by over, I started it and wrote the outline and wrote in the important stuff that I thought was important. And then a hundred people have written the rest, which is most of it. Um, it's going to be released um, by O'Reilly as a book. So nice. you can pre-order <clears throat> that uh, now. And all of the proceeds are going to, uh, Django Girls, which is a great foundation that helps uh, uh, specifically, they word it really interestingly. Um, basically, they lead workshops for women to learn how to code and do uh, Django app deployment, but um, they also do other things that aren't specific to women as well. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great cause. And uh, it wouldn't be possible, that whole collaboration of like 100 people writing a book over five years or it wouldn't be possible without the project that Eric wrote, uh, which is, uh, read the docs, which is, well, you helped, right? I guess you, you had a co-writer, right? Yeah. Yeah. There've been lots of, similarly, there've been a decent number of people involved over the years. Yeah. And it's just great place. I host all my documentation there and I just love that you, it's probably all guys. So I'm going to say you guys, (laughs) (laughs) I love that you guys, um, do the status updates when there's an issue, which is very rare, but like, I just love that I can retweet it and just be like, my docs will be up soon. You know, like, <laughs> I, I don't know if any just like static content host that has a, a stat, status updates and stuff. It's just, it's a really high level quality of service. And, uh, unfortunately it is, uh, is malfunded a proper word? It sounds, sounds like a, a good word. <laughs> Do you want to talk about that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think basically we've, oh man, I've been doing it for almost six years now. Um, and yeah, it's basically a free service, you know, offered to the community. And we've tried a number of different ways of doing kind of, um, you know, ways of funding it. Uh, we've done some, you know, fundraisers, kind of like Kickstarter style, you know, you know, we want this amount of money by this time. Um, those worked basically once. <laughs> and then it was like, oh, well, and I think we made $24,000. Um, and that went to have somebody work on the project for three months and just do a bunch of support and a bunch of awesome stuff. He got a ton of stuff done. Um, that was uh, Gregor. Uh, he's in, I always screw up his last name, so I'm not going to try. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so anyway, we're now kind of back the drawing board where it's like you know we get some individual donations from from people but we have no kind of ongoing substantial source of funding and so basically at this point you know i've i've I think i've exhausted most of the the other options and we're looking at doing basically what i'm calling kind of ethical advertising <laughs> um so there's basically you know advertising that doesn't track you and doesn't get in the way um so we're basically just embedding one small little, you know, ad on read the docs pages. 
that's, you know, similar to kind of the deck is our model for here, for this, where it's right, like, we need to find a, a way to support open source infrastructure pro- infrastructure projects. Because uh, PyPy, Python Package Index, and, you know, all these other tools have the exact same issues. Uh, the Django REST framework, um, they're actually part of the way through a, a major fundraising campaign. I think they're at, like, 50% funded. Uh, but Django itself, right, can't even fund, like, one full-time developer. Wow. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's... It's because conferences are expensive. <clears throat> it's really, really broken. <laughs> um, and so basically my, my thought process was, you know, we have all these corporations that have, you know, a pile of sponsorship money that is, like, vanishingly small, and they have a pile of advertising money, which is massive. <laughs> That's a very accurate statement from my experience. And so it's like, well, what if we just diverted, instead of that advertising money going to Google and Facebook and going to these evil, you know, huge, massive corporations... What if that advertising money just went directly to the open source projects that they're actually using and the people they're trying to reach? Um, and so that's really kind of the, the founding principle. And then it's like, along with that, you know, basically just building out ad serving that's all first party that doesn't, you know, we're not doing any weird JavaScript stuff. We're not doing any cookies. We're not doing any. any just kind never of, do any pre-roll stuff. Or I'll leave immediately. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Well, and, and that's the audience, right? It's like. Nobody, nobody wants crappy ads, and nobody wants stuff that moves. Or no, <laughs> um, and so that's that's really the goal is to both kind of make a make a dent in what advertising looks like by trying to kind of roll back to the the old days where it's like, how about we just put a thing on a page and if people click it, then they might buy your product, and then you give us money <laughs> <laughs> instead of like these these ad tech companies that have just built more and more kind of invasive you know, invasive tracking and, and triggering and all this crazy stuff that then gets gamed by people that scam them. And I mean, it's, it's a really weird industry. Yeah, you could have easily done the opposite where you inject uh, just a tracking thing and then there's no ad at all. And then later, you know, if they went to a Python documentation site, later they'll get a bunch of ads for different Python companies. Right, yeah. Or, that, that would be the unethical way. In your right, opinion. right. We just sell user data where it's like oh hey you want people that you know use your competitors you know open source library or <laughs> um yeah there's lots of weird creepy things you can do where you can sell data on the internet um and you know so much of of this work is trying to maintain ethics while supporting open source um and so this you know at the end of the day we're like the people that write the documentation don't have any money <laughs> so we're never gonna be able to charge for the service right because, like, for example, the Python guide, people that are authoring that should not be paying, right? That is a that is the community that we want to support. Yeah. Um, and that's who, you know, like, you don't have money. They're like, if you would have had to pay money to start that project, it never would have started, right? I mean, it's just, like, we, we want to keep that barrier to entry really low. And so the only, but it's like we have millions of people that view stuff every month. And it's like a classic tragedy to comment, right? Like, you know, every engineer at Google and Dropbox and, you know, all these massive corporations use read the docs, you know, multiple times a day, but none of them are ever going to pay us for it. (laughs) And so the only, basically the only way to convert this kind of disparate, like massive amount of attention, like I forget the stat, but it's something like, you know, 50,000 days a year are spent on read the docs in terms of like, you know, like, like time on site. Right. Like it's, it's some, you know, it's like a human life every like month or, (laughs) you know, it's some absurd amount of time. And so basically, that's a good metric, 
Right, right. It's it's a cool it's a cool thing to think about. But like you I'd know, I'd love to see what that is for Facebook. <laughs> right. It's probably you know per second or whatever. Um, Be like ten thousand human lifetimes a second. <laughs> but um, but yeah, but basically you know transitioning a, a tiny percentage of that attention into money is really does this and this is why it, you know advertising is is the business model of the internet right like nobody will willingly like you can't there's not a critical enough mass of people who will pay for something that you have to basically sell small amounts of attention well for, 99% of your money comes from 1% of your users usually in a, right. in a model like that where you're where where you're just like asking for money right, right. Right, the PSF would give us, you know, twenty grand a year, and you know, we, we'd find we'd cobble together some subset of corporate sponsors, like do some sweetheart deal with Rackspace or Red Hat, or you know, like, um, and it's like. So, what is your? Uh, can I ask what your biggest cost is for running the service? I mean, I know that it's a bunch of static sites <laughs> with a bunch of caching and a lot of storage. Yep, and a lot of uh, you have to, you know build all those which is quite a bit of cpu as well but i'm guessing storage is probably the, or or bandwidth are, are the biggest ones yeah i think we do something like seven six or seven terabytes a month um wow in plain text gzip plain text <laughs> <laughs> that's unbelievable yeah it's crazy um i think our, our server costs right now are about three grand a month um and yes yeah, so like part of that i think about a third is storage about a third is bandwidth and about a third is uh, instances, yeah, um, give or give or take. Obviously, that's those are rough numbers. Um, but I mean, I mean, the real cost is is time, right? Like, if if you were paying market rate for the amount of time that we spend, you know, doing operations work and you know, waking up at three in the morning because the database you know fell over or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah you're on call. You're an employee to yourself for free. Right. That that's really you know the the main cost is definitely social and you know time um, and that, that tears down your mental health after a while if uh i guess another way to approach that problem you know i because I, I have the request project and it was um i kind of had a similar problem where just you know as it got so popular um I, you know i just i can't it's not possible to keep up with all that Mm-hmm. All the all the incoming issues and stuff that people have, and I want wanted to. Um, so eventually, I, I got um, I found two people who were like actively engaged in the project, and now they're uh, contributors. They're not contributors. What's the word? Collaborators. Co co. Yeah. They're, they're a level above collaborator. Whatever. <laughs> they have commit access and they do wor- more work on it than I do now. Um, and it would just wouldn't be possible for the project to be at the level of quality that it is now without them, because I just, you just can't sustain that for so long. Uh, do you, do you feel like getting more volunteer work involved volunteers involved would, um, be similar to reducing the amount of time? Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that honestly, we're at that point of diminishing returns already where I'm, I am definitely less effective and less inspired and less imaginative, right? than I was six years ago. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, no, and that's actually one of my biggest failures as kind of the project maintainer is not having enough people that are contributors, right? Because I think the biggest thing with, with read the docs is the service, not a library. Yeah. <clears throat> and so people don't import it. People don't use it. People don't have the code on disk. Um, 
And it is open source and you can run it yourself on mm-hmm. your own infrastructure, but I guess that's a relatively rare well, thing. Well, lots of people do it, but they just don't contribute anything back. <laughs> yeah, it's just like um, take the code and run it. It's right, like so, downloading WordPress. Who contributes back to WordPress? Right, right. Um, but And so that's the really tricky part is people that run it themselves don't contribute back. And then we don't have a, a team of people who develop it. Um, I think mainly because it's not something that anyone would use at work in that context. You know, where it's not like, oh, I'm using Django at work, so I'm going to contribute this patch uh, that we need in the code base for my job or whatever. Um, Now, I I do remember at some point there was a a for-profit component where you were exploring that for sustainability. Is that something that is still underway? It is is still being developed. Um, It's basically working on the conferences that we do, working on the open source stuff. And all the other all the other work that's happening that just leaves very little time left for actually doing the the, uh, <laughs> the two. There's a European and a U.S. Uh, right to <clears throat> conference. So those, correct. Is there more than those two? Uh, just those two for now. We're in in talks about doing something in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in the next maybe next year. Um, but so because, yeah, so basically, I have the the entire conference and community around right the docs. Um, the open source project that I'm still on call for and requires operational and support work. Um, and then we're also doing some amount of like consulting where it's like, you know, help us build Sphinx extensions or, you know, do custom documentation implementations for, for different people. Um, but there's not a huge amount of that work, but there's enough that it's, you know, distracting. <laughs> Um, and, and, yeah. the, and those conferences are really cool because the audience de- definitely has a large number of software engineers, but there's a, I don't know if it's larger, but it seems like a number of just technical writers from all over the place that are, that you would never interact with otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's like an underserved community. Exactly. Technical writers didn't have their, their community, right. They didn't have the, the open source community kind of that existed for them. Uh, also, the other big one is is kind of the support type roles where people that are doing, you know, uh, user support uh, also do a lot of documentation. And so, yeah, the kind of professional writers, people that do support as well as uh, developers. And, and actually, lately, a lot of um, like DevRel kind of people have been really getting into documentation because they see the value of documentation in, you know, developer relations. And, mm. uh, and a lot of DevRel people are kind of responsible for documentation in some way um, yeah that I, I my role has a lot of dev rel in it and documentation is a huge part of of all that for sure yep so it's cool it's, it's one of those kind of like mixed communities full of different types of people that i i always really enjoy um kind of having you know a, a more diverse job title set of people as well as you know the other diversity metrics that we we talk about we're actually thinking about this year doing a uh, a discount code where if you buy a ticket, we'll give you like a twenty percent discount if you give it to somebody else in your organization that has a different job title. Whoa, cool! Just to kind of like promote that that worldview. Basically, we're gonna that's a different type of diversity. I like that. Yeah, exactly, and and I think that's really important because that's so much so much of the value from the community comes from that kind of cross pollination. I think it'd be great to get someone that's just like straight up marketing into that. Just, you know, the, the type of person that's just like hardcore sales type of marketing, mm-hmm. you know, and just be like, let's uh, let's show you a bunch of authentic, like, I, I don't know the right way to word that, but 
just, I don't know, the community that I saw at those conferences were, like, people that are really passionate about, like, craftsmanship of their work, and, like, usually the marketing people I've interacted with uh, are, are usually more like, you know, just hit the numbers. It's all matters. <laughs> so it would be cool to see see what they think of it. Totally. Yeah, and, and we do have, we've had a couple, you know, documentation is marketing type talk um, as well, right? Because, yeah, it's it's a huge part of kind of the sales process for a lot of these web companies or, you know, anything that has a, that's API driven, you know, documentation is a, is a core part of your marketing and sales. Oh yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah. So that's, that's been really interesting just kind of interacting with that huge community and it, it's a huge amount of time. Like we have a Slack channel now that has like 70, 750 people in it. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, I guess that's more approachable for, uh, non-engineers than than IRC. Yeah, and and it's just you know better in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, of course. I, I'm like, really excited. My company just switched to Slack from HipChat like this week, and I, I just my whole life I've always been really inspired by really well done software, mm-hmm. and I've been kind of I don't want to say I've been depressed for the last couple of years, but like one of the reasons I loved going switching to the Mac back in like 2008 or nine mm-hmm. was there was a ton of like really well-made software. And it, it seems as though that's trailed off a lot because all that attention is going to iOS. Yep. Um, but I, and I started using Slack and I'm just like, Oh, I remember this feeling. This is great. <laughs> Cause it's so like, they just, there's so much over attention to detail, you know? Yeah. They do a great job. Yeah. I love it. I love all the little tweaks as well. Like every every time, every like month or so, I open up a new iOS app or whatever, and it's like, oh, you made like account switching a little bit nicer, or you know, like they they've done so many little little revisions that just make it a little bit easier to do. You know, one less click to do your job, and I, it just feels good when you're like, oh, they thought of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when when I got the like email that we were switching, I kind of rolled my eyes because you know, you hear about it on Twitter right. all the time and stuff. And I just thought it was this big hype thing. But when I actually started using it, I was like, Oh man, this is like valid hype. It's like, there's people <laughs> like this for a reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, it's like GitHub versus, versus Bitbucket. Like one has a level of, of uh, just craftsmanship that the other one doesn't. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that Atlassian, I think it's like the enterprise product, like, failure where you kind of build products to generate checklists for people that are enterprise customers and don't actually sell to the users who use your product who care about yeah. user experience. Yeah, and so we were using an on-site one which we had to do on-site at the time and mm-hmm. uh and it, it worked I was you know HipChat works great. It it does what it does great, but it's like there's just a there're two different levels of of product there. You know, one is yep. like do you, you want chat or do you like, do you want people to love talking to each other? You know, like <laughs> that, that's how I feel they, they compare. Or, you know, it's like when you went back in the day, you know, you had like Twitter and you had a couple competitors to Twitter, mm-hmm. uh, the same type of thing, you know, like the, the one that wins is usually for a reason. And it's usually because like, you know, it's just, there's, there's inspiration in, in what they're building. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, and I, it's really cool to see, you know, I think Slack just makes it really easy for people to get involved and, you know, they it's kind of sticky. Like, whereas the amount of effort you have to get in IRC to get, like, persistent logging and, you know, like, um, you know it's it's definitely... And, and, the, and Slack has an IRC gateway as well, which is cool. So, you know, if you 
if you care enough about IRC and, you know, you can still use IRC to, to use Slack, which is nice. Oh, I forgot about that. I need to try it. I don't think I will, though, because it's so it's uh, really is so good. It's really good. And the mobile apps are delightful. And, you know, it, it basically just works. Emoji. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so anyway, that's been really cool to kind of see that that community grow and really kind of, you know, there's people in there every day talking about, you know, writing stuff <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and really kind of building that community out in lo- lots of meetups across the country. And, and it's really kind of getting to the point where it needs a staff position. <laughs> like, oh, they're running their own local meetups. Yeah, yeah I think we have like 10 or 15 Wow, that's um, fantastic. That's that's uh, that's really great. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's becoming a real thing. Like, I mean, the conference had 400 people this year and it sold out. You know, um, we're basically maxed out the Crystal Ballroom in Portland. <laughs> with, the, with the bouncy floors. Oh yeah, uh, the the I, I, worst part about that venue. <laughs> I think that's the best part of it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always a mixed mixed review. Some people love the, it. Some people hate it. <laughs> I guess there was like a meal slash concert there this year at PyCon and I, I missed it. I didn't, I don't know how I just missed the memo for it entirely. Uh, I would have gone. Yeah. But I've been yeah. there twice for the two conferences that have, there's probably been more than two now. Three. Three. Yep. Yeah. I was at the first two yep. and uh, I love that venue. It's cool to go downstairs into the, the artist green room and see the stuff on the walls. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think I saw Lord. I think that was the most famous person who was written on the wall. <laughs> but but I guess they've rotated out every six months or something. Yeah, they we we put our our name on the board every year. And <laughs> and, um, yeah, no, it's it's a cool, it's a super, it just fits this the community. Like it's it's a very you know kind of it's an independent space with an independent community that's not. You know, we really want it to feel open sourcey and community driven, and not you know not a corporate event. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah so an expo hall. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so now we're kind of there, we're at that point where it's like the, the big question is how you grow it, whether we, we keep making it bigger and lose access to cool venues, yeah. or if we start kind of splitting it into multiple venues, um, you know, like an East coast and a West coast event or something along mm. those lines. That's tough. It's a, it's a hard one, right? Or get, yeah, get a bigger venue so you can have, accept more people or, or have multiple, have it twice a year or something crazy yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly. But I also, you know, I, I also dislike big events. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I'd much prefer a, a 400 person event than a 4,000. Oh, for sure. Or even a, or even a thousand person event, right? I think once you hit about 350 to 400 people, I say this every year. Not, not I, only as an attendee, but as an organizer, especially. Oh, yeah. I, I used to, this number keeps going up as I organize bigger events. Like, I used to be like, 250 is the perfect number. <laughs> no, it's like, 350 is the perfect number. <laughs> You're going to be like 10,000 yeah. uh, in 10 years. You just don't understand. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, no, it's, it's one of those kind of existential things where do we want just, like, the one big party that everyone has to come to Portland for, or do we want to start building more kind of regional... You know. Well, ideally, you can serve both. That's, I mean, that's what the Python community does. There, there are so many PyCons, right? But there is one PyCon, you know, and uh, and I, I feel like it works well because I've been to a significant number of PyCons, right? Uh, and Same. but that one every year, that's so important. It's like the whole that's the highlight of my year is going to that event. Yeah, and I think, but the the tricky thing is then we still have to build the event, make the event larger. Um, you know. 
but the Portland event would still have to grow if that was going to. Is that kinda... is that a restriction of fire codes? Um, no. I mean, it's just a restriction of like physical space. I mean, you can cram them in there concert style. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then you have to beat them somehow, and you know, <laughs> like the lunch line already like wrapped all the way around the venue and touched. You know, they like like the two lunch lines touched each other in the back of the room. <laughs> oh wow, that's pretty bad. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just like logistical challenges, right? Of of doing a lot of things with a lot of people in a space. And, and I do think that seating in spaces is incredibly important. Yeah. Like sitting people at round tables versus in stadium seating is a very different experience. And it's much more yeah. social and it encourages interaction in, in a real way. All of my favorite conferences have been round table. Yep. So I can only think of two or three off the top of my head, but they were like my, some of my top ones. Yeah. And I, I, I just, there's a lot of that stuff where we don't want to kind of compromise necessarily. Um, so you know we'll see it's i think we'll we'll play you know we'll flail around try a couple different things in the next couple of years and we'll probably end up making both the west coast one because even splitting east west coast will only stop it from growing for a year or two <laughs> yeah like like instead of being a 500 person event this year we can make a you know a 350 person west coast and a 200 person east coast but then that west coast one is just going to grow <laughs> like it's going to you just have double, you'll just be, you know, concurrency problem. Right, exactly. It'll, it'll constantly be kind of growing. Um, you know, if we do our jobs right, it'll always be bigger the next year. And we can you you know, decide if you scale horizontally or vertically. Exactly. You know. Um, so what is, you know, for anyone who's listening, if they want to help the mission that you're going on now and you're having a funding issue, what are you, what would you prefer they do if they want to help? Uh, talk their employers about budgeting support for open source that's like a large-scale change like what is there <laughs> anything that they can do today to help i would love i would love more contributors like if you know python and django um you know just come on the issue tracker and we have really good con- contributing documentation so we have you know lots of issues tagged you know good first bug and all that kind of stuff so you know if people are i would love to have more core contributors and if you know, read the docs is a big, important project and you can come become a core part of that. And I'm sure it'd be, you know, good for your resume. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so there's not a, um, you know, I'm sure uh, donations, individual donations are accepted, but that's not something that is like <sighs> deeply needed at the moment. Uh, it's just not sustainable, right? Like, yeah, if you get, a, you know, a $200 donation from some random company once, you can't really do anything with that money. I mean, you can, you can spend it, but it's not, you can't hire somebody. You can't like even, you know, start, you have to get a lot of those before you can even start doing any kind of, you know, contracting with someone or, you know, you need more like commitment style exactly from a company where they're like, okay, we're using this a lot. We'll give you X a month. Well, and, and, and in reality, the only way we're ever going to get that money is by doing some type of sponsorship deal where it's like, Hey, you know, whoever, like Roku, you know, you have tons of Python users, you want goodwill in the community, give us five grand and we'll put your logo on our website. And that's basically the advertising that we're selling. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's easy to sell to the marketing department. So, I mean, that type of thing. Right, uh, right. It's a lot easier than, uh, can you cut a check for this open source project? That's like a whole other thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. This, this like, is, one of those is much easier to do than the This other. is not a donation, right? This is a, <laughs> this is a business expense. Yeah, um, and the marketing team, 
at most companies I've worked for usually can they have authority to spend their own money on things like that. Yeah, exactly. And and I think that's really we're gonna we're actually in talks with somebody to really kind of start trying to do a little bit of like kind of part time sales. Um, to actually, really just kind of do those conversations because you know I I don't have time to go out and sell stuff, <laughs> and I'm also really bad at it. So hopefully, you know. The goal is to Open actually source salesman. Now I like that idea. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that's really the thing is, is we're really just trying to find a way to get money from companies into open source projects. <laughs> uh, and, and luckily we have a platform that has a reasonably obvious advertising vessel. Um, and so, you know, that, that's really the current goal is, yeah. Hey, do you want your brand in front of a bunch of programmers that, are happy that you're supporting open source, you know, come give us money and, you know, we will. So this might be a question that you're not comfortable or can answer at the moment, but say I'm a large company and I want to go all in and, you know, I want to be, I want to go in on the ad platform mm-hmm. um, as much as possible. What's, is there a, what's the highest amount you can accept? Um, so so we've done a little bit of research and we've basically figured out that about five to seven dollars is average industry uh, CPM, which unlike you would think is actually cost per thousand <laughs> uh, because it's cost per mille, which is the like Roman word for thousand or something, you know, instead of being Are you serious. A, yeah, that's uh, the CPM is the standard term, but it doesn't mean million. <laughs> um I feel like I used to know this, but I forgot because I've it, been so removed from the I, world. I didn't used to know this, <laughs> and I didn't really want. <laughs> I didn't really want to know this, but I now know this. Um, but but yeah, so that basically means a million page views are worth five to seven thousand dollars. That would okay. be you know kind of our you know so theoretically you know our, our you know and, and that's of course you know geo specific and yada yada yada. Um, but you know, surprises theoretically are are you know, site if is worth at least, you know, $50,000 a month in advertising. Oh yeah. I mean, you must have an, I mean, I just, the Python guide gets 10,000 views a day or readers a day. Right. Yep. Uh, and that's very targeted. Right. It's like Python developers, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. And so, so the, there's a very obvious revenue model. Um, and so our goal is to try and actually, you know, start building that out. And then, you know, we're going to basically take some percentage of that revenue and turn it into a grant pool to basically give back to project that post with us. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, because, I mean, it doesn't make sense for us to just be, like, making a bunch of money. And <laughs> um, Are you doing that out of guilt? Or, or I, is it because you, like, you, the mission is to really, like, keep this thing moving forward and moving outward? Right. No, I mean, the, the mission is to, to figure out a model for funding open source and a model that only benefits one project is not <laughs> doesn't figure it out for anybody. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, it'd be great if we could, if infrastructure could get support, but we also want to be able to kind of, you know, help the community as well. Um, and that's an incentive potential. Well, no, I, I won't go there. Never mind. I was going to say it was an incentive for projects to host on you, but that's probably the opposite of what you would want. Well, I mean, we'll but- who knows? But maybe maybe it would be maybe just the idea that you support open source in general would be incentive. I mean, it's it's marketing, right? Like supporting open source. We've been supporting open source for a long time, and a lot of people don't know how much we're supporting it. Right? <laughs> that we're a bunch of people working for free, um, wearing <laughs> wearing pagers. You know, 
Um, yeah, that's that's support, and uh, I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize. Even people that do open source, you know, like time is money, and uh, well, and that's op- valuable. Opp- you know? Opportunity cost also, right? Where the the yes. not not being able to be away from my phone. <laughs> uh, Always on call. Yeah, I mean, we have two people in an on call rotation, and and actually, I kind of freaked out about this on Twitter a couple times, and I. <laughs> Got, I have like three or four people who are in the in the works of kind of being turned up on our on-call rotation, uh, including some people in Europe. So hopefully we're actually going to be able to expand that on-call, you know, group uh, much, much larger here soon. And I'd, I'd love to do similar with kind of contributors to the code base as well and really start to get the project in a healthier state. Because right now it's really not, there's not a lot of outside people doing work on it. Um. And I think that's, from what I've seen, it's like a pretty standard place for a lot of projects to be in. <laughs> um, you know, even requests, it sounds like it's only, you know, worked on substantially by what, maybe three or four people? Three people, yeah. Mostly two people. <laughs> right. You know, and on then, the BDFL, uh, effectively. And, and then, uh, then there's the two, two main people. And that's crazy, right? I mean, that's like, that's insane that that is, you know. The, yeah, because we're a very serious piece of infrastructure for the community. Right, like that's that's an issue that <laughs> only well, it, it's it does seem to be sustainable. If there was more people, it would be problematic because it's it's very much a like a culture culture management type of a situation where like those two people work really well, right? Because they know how I think and, and they can make can make the decisions uh, that I would make for me. And right. also use their own judgment to override it when needed, you know? And are they, and I think what, uh, at least one of them's paid to work on, on this, right? Um, yeah, he has a job where um, he's paid to work on open source full time. So that yeah. helps a lot. Yeah. Yeah, he's the one, he's the most active one. That's Corey, Corey Benfield. Yep. Um, and yeah, without those two, if they were to just disappear today, I do think the project would be fine. It's just like, it's just a bunch of completely random stuff that people bring up that's low level that I don't care about because I care about the API and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't care about the, the optimization of the socket connections and, and the SSL termination. Like I don't, that doesn't matter to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that stuff would just st- stay where it is and it's in a good spot. So I, I think the project would be pretty good, but it's good to have the bus factor reduced. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had a mental health issue uh, last year uh, where I became completely incapacitated basically <laughs> for the first time. Um, and after that happened, I realized just like, just that that could happen. I didn't, you know, I was fine before that. Right. There are, there are multiple types of buses that can hit you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so that was when I, uh, I like, I gave them authorization, uh, on the cheese shop to upload new releases, you know, cause it was like, you know, oh, me, you know, there is, this is an instance where I was unavailable completely. You know what I yeah. mean? So I was a little bit reluctant to do it, but it's like I, the metaphor I use is that it's okay to hand the keys to someone when you can't drive, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, that, I think that's a really good one. And that's, it's really, you can be really reluctant if it's your own project to, to do that, you know? Totally. And that's similar with Read the Docs, right? Like two people have access to the servers like, that are hosting all the stuff, <laughs> uh, which is just crazy. Like, like, what if, you know, that that's an insanely small bus factor, and they were both in the same geological location. <laughs> um, you know, like, if you were an enterprise software company, that would not be, you know, I would not pass that <laughs> security audit. <laughs> like, um, oh, 
I, I have a topic that we didn't pre-discuss, but it would be interesting to, to touch on real briefly. Sure. Okay, so um, I was sitting at my desk, like right here, uh, I don't know, like two, uh, probably two weekends ago, and I get a notification on my iPhone, and it, it was a GitHub token to, to log in, you know, like a two-factor auth token. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so I just like, I go and I, I start investigating. And uh, I basically someone w- was attempting to do a targeted hack on me, um, which is crazy because like I always knew that that would be a possibility with a, you know, with requests being a thing and and working for Heroku and, and all that stuff. But so I've always been precautious, but I've never been um, paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but this someone um, got into my DNS account, is what happened. Oh wow. And they removed the MX records from my domain. And then they intercepted the, the password reset email. Yep. Um, oh, so from they. G- from GitHub. And so then they did reset my password. And then they go to log in. And luckily, I had two factor auth turned on. And they weren't able to get farther. And I was notified immediately. And, you know, I, I was on the phone with my company. And I, you know, know people at GitHub. So, you know, within f- five minutes, I had the guy's IP address. And, and uh, I, you know, nothing was accessed, and I was removed from all the accounts just in case. And it was, but it's scary that idea that someone would do that uh, because you know I didn't have a highly secure password on my DNS. I had a reused password which um, had been yeah. um, uh, leaked, I guess, from some service. Sure. And like, but that wasn't of high concern to me. I'm like, who's gonna like go to my? Who's gonna find this? email address in this massive list with this password and then like, oh, let's try DNS simple. You know, like that's only something that a targeted person does. But this, this is something that actually happens, apparently. Yeah. I, I was really surprised. Well, and I've, I've heard of stories of people like uh, social engineering, like the phone companies to get oh. like a SIM card with your phone number. So they kind of steal your phone number to get the second factor too. Wow. That'd be crazy. No, I still have no idea how they got the email. Uh, I haven't figured that part out, but the the threat seems to be mitigated because they removed the records. They didn't add any. Um, so I or it maybe, seems as though the theory is it was a DNS poisoning thing where like they were able to poison GitHub's DNS or something. That's the only thing that security people I talked to could think of. Hmm. But they but they did. They received an email that was sent to me that I didn't get. Uh, that was they gave them a token to reset my password. Yeah, it was great. But anyway, so lesson learned. Uh, I already knew this, luckily, but uh, turn two-factor authentication on everything. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it's actually pretty valuable. And that's one of those things that, like, our ops, all of our ops repos and stuff, like, are private. And yeah, like, two-factor auth is definitely <laughs> a, a thing that is, you know, I'm I'm treating as a requirement there. Yeah, and I like as a personal user of GitHub. I, I never would have done that, but my employer requires me to have two-factor auth on. Yep. Um, and I'm really thankful that they do. So now, now I'm adamant about to everybody else. If you have a personal account, you know, just just turn it on. <laughs> I don't like using two-factor auth when it involves the, like a phone app, you know, like Authy or something. Right. Um, but I, I do like it when it's SMS-based, which I know is slightly, uh, you know, there is a vector there, but yeah, and I you, know, um... you can only go so far. One GitHub, my GitHub's actually on a, a YubiKey. Oh, really? Yeah. GitHub branded YubiKey, in fact. 
I didn't know they did that. Yeah, they did like a, a cross promotion where they gave away the YubiKeys cheap uh, cool. when GitHub launched their their support for it. Is it the Nano or the regular one? Uh, I'm not sure. The Nano is like you can barely see it. Oh no, it's, it was the regular one. It's like on my keychain, but I use that for Google. Uh, Google and GitHub are like the only places that actually support it. <laughs> but those are really the accounts that I, you know, those are two of the main accounts that I care about. Let's see. All right. The other topic that we have left is uh, not giving a shit about what's going on right now, (laughs) (laughs) which is effectively. um, So I've I've only done this show one other time. And uh, last time, you know, this was the case then, but it's even more so the case now. I don't know if it's something with me or with the community. And that's what I want to discuss. And it's the idea basically that, um, you know, when I was getting started with, with being, uh, like a professional software engineer, like coding was my life, um, being tuned in to all new hit projects and, and things that were coming out were, were my life. I refreshed hacker news like 150 times a day, you know, like it was a bit extreme, but that was who I, you know, that was like my yeah. life. It was, it was, it was keeping up with all that stuff. And I was an expert at everything. And and over the years, you know, the culture of I'll just use Hacker News as an example, but there's so many news sources for all this stuff, just Twitter and all that. And it seems like I've been following the same type of people this whole time. And, and the, the things that they're talking about on Twitter have also changed where like I see very little programming stuff in my feed. I see. I mean, there's a lot of it, but compared to before, you know, it was like just constant links to a bunch of stuff and everyone's trying cool new things. Mm-hmm. And and nowadays, you know, it's, it's mostly like more personal oriented things or just like cool things from the Internet. And, you know, we're all like relaxing and hanging out because we've been doing this for a while. Um, so I don't know if it's that the news, uh, the tech, the tech news, if you will, has gotten it has changed or if it's that we or I have changed or, or what it is, but I, I went to go do this show and come up with a bunch of topics of like, all right, what are the interesting things that have happened lately? And there's nothing because I don't care about what's going on right now because <laughs> there's nothing. But it's not that I don't care. It's to me, there's nothing interesting happening. And everything used to interest me. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? I, I know that was a lot. <laughs> so no, no, I think I have like a multitude of thoughts. So let me try to make them in, in somewhat of a, a cohesive order. Um, so first off, I have Hacker News in my local host file, 127, <laughs> um, so that I try to go there. It kills, uh, it, it gives me a, a connection not, you know, website not found. So I basically have, have cut myself off from Hacker News. Um, so I think one of the, one thing is that as you stay in an industry longer and see things come and go, you realize new stuff doesn't actually matter, especially if I'm going to use something in production. I want it to have been around for like five years minimum because I, I value my time so much more now um, than I used to, right? Like if I'm going to go and try this like thing that just got released, I know I'm going to be beating my head against it for the next, you know, five, you know, five weeks or whatever. And then it's, when it's in production, I'm going to be hating it. And <laughs> this, is, this is why I read the docs uses boring technology, right? It's like Postgres and Python and Django. And it's like, it all works. Nginx. Yeah. It's like, it all works. It all works well. I know it's operational, you know, Working in operations really uh, makes you adopt this mindset, <laughs> uh, but you really value stability. And I think as, as kind of a younger, uh, younger programmer, you're still really excited and you don't really know how the, how the world works. 
and there's all this new stuff is like feels like what you should be learning because it's new and interesting and it's kind of the cutting edge. Um, but unless you actually legitimately have the problems, like these huge companies that are trying, you know, like Hadoop or something, right? Where it's like, unless you have terabytes and terabytes of data, like you're never going to need this stuff. Um, and so I think a lot of people just like investigate this as an intellectual exercise. And I've learned that kind of my time is better spent just like doing work. Like I already have so little time to do the work that I need to do. <laughs> Trying to learn new exciting technology is, is way lower on my list. Uh, now that I have more responsibility and more kind of stuff going on. Yeah, if you need to focus on the Python community, I just, I, I, I'm not saying this is an accurate statement. Um, but I don't know. I just feel like there used to be like a stream of new exciting libraries that were coming out. And I don't find that to be the case anymore. And I don't know if it's I'm tapped into different channels or I'm just not paying attention or I don't care. But it seems like maybe the culture has changed. Well, I think Python, I mean, all the cool new libraries that come out every five seconds are in Node or Go. Or <laughs> That's true. Those languages didn't exist then. Python Python's now boring old technology. So we get to just relax and yeah. build the software. And then, yeah, exactly. And then you, in 10 years, you're, you're out of date. <laughs> um, but, but no, I mean, I think the, the really exciting stuff. Well, that's stuff... something that I worry about is, is uh, I, I don't know the right way to put it, but just kind of like career stagnancy effectively. Or it's mm-hmm. like I'm very comfortable with the tools I have available in Python. I can build anything that I need to build, uh, you know, if I'm not, it used to be, you know, you had to constantly learn all this new stuff. For me, that's that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I wanted to constantly learn all this stuff to, to st- you know, be at the top of my game. And to me now, being at the top of my game is, is doing nothing effectively. <laughs> <laughs> and I worry that, that that's like an illusion or, or a fallacy of some sort. Well, it's, it's certainly temporary. Um, but I also, I also, so just to give another kind of, uh, example of this is when I was in in college, I had a Linux machine, and I was so freaking excited because I like every time something would break, I was like running Gentoo right, and it's like, all right, I'm going to spend six hours compiling my kernel, and I'm going to learn so much, and like, <laughs> um, and then over time, I eventually kind of got over, you know, the fact that I ended up, you know, having a Linux machine, and I kept kind of needing to know how it worked and, and really kind of experience, um, you know, like how the, how the internals work, right? How does the kernel work? How does the network and stack work? All this kind of stuff. And, and eventually one, I, I learned all that stuff, but then two, I also kind of got, got to the point where I just wanted to get my work done. And I was kind of had a, a set of tasks that were more important than kind of feeding my own curiosity. And so I was able to kind of, go go into having a Mac and it's like, all right, this Mac is going to allow me um, to just focus on my work and I'll have a Mac and I don't need to be fixing stuff every three seconds and I, I know how computers work. And so, yeah, like like kind of that transition from, from Linux no to Mac. No more uh, Xorg config. Right, right, exactly. And it's like, oh, you know, when, when I have something I need to, you know, I have these three tasks I need to do today, I don't want my, you know, X server breaking in the, you know, or... or or playing around with like new window managers that like do crazy 3D effects. <laughs> um, so I think yeah, I think there's kind of a natural. Trump is oh man, memories. <laughs> yeah. 
And I'm not posting barrel, barrel. I'm not posting screenshots of my like Linux desktop to, to uh, Reddit. There was the one I loved where <laughs> you just hold the top of the bar and to move the window around and it would just jiggle like jello. And it was my it was the coolest effect. I still <laughs> wish I had that on yeah it's it's so funny but but right you know and so i think there's there's part of that's a natural progression of becoming a more mature developer and wanting to just use tools that you know are going to work and and not gonna just spend do you ever miss toys like do you feel like going to another language is the only place to do that no no i think um i mean i i've actually felt this way a lot where it's like i'm I'm so focused on what i'm working on that i really wish i had side projects but i I just don't have time (laughs) (laughs) you know i don't i don't even have time to do the stuff i need to do you know let let alone all the fun stuff and and similar you know talking about like the the mental tax of of open source right like feeling responsibility for projects that are unpaid doesn't allow me to kind of scratch that that fun itch because i have i i intend well what's the right way to put this i structure my life in a way where i have lots of time uh but i fill it with hobbies Mm -hmm. and my hobby used to be computer stuff and now it's everything but computer stuff basically right i do do music i do photography i go on bike rides and um and i i kind of miss my hobby being computer stuff but there's nothing interesting for me to do (laughs) it's you know i don't that's probably just me i'm you know there's plenty of stuff going on that i could do i could be playing with docker but you know I don't know. I, this, it, seemed, it seemed like there was an infinite sea of, of new toys to play with technologically uh, that are, are just not there anymore for me. Or there's nothing that's catching that's, that's, uh, that appeals to me. There used to be a lot that appealed to me, and there's not anymore. When I think a lot of, a lot of the new hotness is in these like system programming languages, this like high scale, you know, both Rust and Go, I don't find particularly fun because they're not like, I can't just play around with them, right? They're like, oh, you want to like build this incredibly scalable, stable system that doesn't have memory leaks. And even like, they're like serious programming languages for serious people, you know, and, and yeah. like Docker and all the kind of operations tools are similar. Like, like I used to geek out on like deployments, but it's like, no, yeah. like I don't, I don't need to geek out on that anymore. I basically understand it. I, it's not a solved problem, but it's like, I understand it well enough to not have to deal with it. And so I don't need you know, like, like I think the, the scope of things I understand at a, a somewhat fundamental level is growing. You don't, you don't feel like there's a big hole anywhere where something's missing. Well, I mean, there's for your current, there's your current. I mean, needs. I think Java's like JavaScript is something I know very poorly and is, is a, is a detriment in the current kind of browser environment, and, you know, but it's like, I, used, I used to love doing front end web development. Uh, I was very good at it. At the time, uh, but that those skills do not carry over today in any way, shape, or form, <laughs> because it's a totally different world, and that's yep. a world that moves very quickly. Um, you know, and I, when I say front end development, I mean like mostly HTML and CSS, or like and X, light X, JavaScript. HTML or <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, ton of XHTML and, and jQuery. You know, I knew all the jQuery tricks to make my content look right. You know, you know, yep. fun stuff like that, and. Even dabbled in like uh, ext.js framework for doing GUIs in the browser, mm-hmm. uh, and you know nowadays if there's HTML5 and and web fonts and and there's just all these you know you could do it and it's the same thing and all the ex all the old stuff still works too but if you want to be in on the culture of what's like hot and new like I was then you know it's like again it's a full time job where you have to you know there's like Ember JS and then, like three months later, there's another one, and then three months later, there's another one. Yep. And uh, I don't know. 
it's it's not something that's fun for me anymore because then it was like I'm learning something that I can use for life and it is I can still use all that stuff to, to do something which is great mm-hmm. but it's like it's like a treadmill but yeah exactly I'm <laughs> off the treadmill now and I got my work my workouts done and I'm happy you know but if, if I wanted to keep running I'm not going to get anything out of it you know like I could get up to date and then I would just be building shittier websites in my opinion because they just have more click events that are misfiring and crap like that <laughs> yeah yeah i mean exactly right like i, I think there's there's a point like in I, the, I value simplicity is what i'm saying when there's a point in your career where you're happy to put up with like learning stuff that's cutting edge and, and gonna break and you're gonna fight through it and you'll submit bug reports and i'm just that stuff just angers me now <laughs> just like why am i using this tool that's like half-baked to do this yeah. thing, you know, like yeah. when it's almost like I just and I, and so much of what I need to do is is solved with the tools I already have, and especially with Django doing like channels uh, to do you know more async stuff, and you know I think there are some decent like improvements in in the Python ecosystem at a structural level. Oh, absolutely. That are, that are going to make that life easier. You know, where I was putting off doing some WebSocket stuff because I didn't want to deal with it, and it's like, oh well, now no, I don't have to deal with it. it it's dealt with for me. <laughs> Well, yeah, now all of Django is being rewritten so that to accept this new model of web application development, basically. That, that's a misnomer about WebSockets that people have is that they're, you can just tack them on and, right. and then there, there you go. Uh, you know, they're, to me, they're kind of the craziest thing that's ever been invented. They're, they're good. I'm not saying they shouldn't exist, but like usually when someone says they want WebSockets, they, they don't know what they're saying and they... They actually want something like um, there's uh, server side events or something like that to send yep, yep. notifications out, um, or, and you can do long polling. Like WebSocket is literally like okay, let's take this. There's like three levels of statelessness, and let's make a single connection with state mm-hmm. uh, and, and persist it through this whole thing. Uh, and it's just the craziest idea in a browser in the world, and. Um, you know, you can write an API. I wrote one called uh, Flask Sockets, which does allow you to tack on a sockets route to your Flask app, uh, and it works really well. But you have to understand how WebSockets worked in order to utilize it. Mm-hmm. Django did a really cool thing where they're like, okay, instead of just tacking it on, we're going to literally rip out the whole way Django works, uh, you know, internally, and give it this whole new platform that you can stick... You know, so it can work in, in that manner, or it can work the regular manner. Right. It's well, like well, basically, whole new beautiful paradigm of programming. We're gonna. I think that's the right approach. Right. We're gonna we're gonna rebuild the synchronous request response model on top of the asynchronous model to allow you yes. to keep your abstraction, but like under the hood, it's still basically doing right. the asynchronous thing. <laughs> but you can use another abstraction. Right, and, and you can now do event handling and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, and yeah, and I'm really impressed with Django for doing that. Uh, I'm, I'm not the biggest Django fan a, as a user just because of the, uh, not, I don't know. It's it, not it, simple. It's, <laughs> it's not simple. No. And it, it's, it's so powerful and it, it, it makes so many decisions for you. And I, I like making decisions. So, um, I, I really know, like not making decisions. <laughs> if there's this, there's a certain style of site that I would choose Django for, sure. um, but most of the, that's not the type of thing I usually build. I usually build really simple stuff that doesn't need all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I'm always really impressed with the stuff that the project does and the way that it's 
progresses forward. And this was a bold, bold move, in my opinion. And I'm very impressed. And I, I think that it's, a, you know, that model, you know, of like, you know, let's actually re refactor this effectively. Um, is something that you're, we should see in other frameworks, uh, in, in other languages as well. Yeah, Cause this is because WebSockets are not solved. We went uh, when we went to launch them at Heroku. Um, you know, we went to build an example app for each language, um, and like because everyone's always asking for WebSockets, <laughs> and uh, and then you know you go to the Python ecosystem and it's like, all right, what's the default way to do this? And there isn't one. You know, there's no there's nothing good out there. So I had to build something, mm -hmm. and it's like that for all of the languages except for. Uh, Node.js effectively. Yep. So, so anyway, I'm just saying I'm really excited. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Django Be does stuff well. Because I, I do feel like, um, especially the HTTP2 um, coming down the pipeline, if you will, I feel like there's there's going to be more focus in web development on concurrency models and, uh, you know, WebSocket type of connections, you know, we're, we're like in your application. I feel like your application will be more aware of those things than they are today where it's just like stupid response, <laughs> stupid, you know, you, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it, it definitely requires a much deeper understanding of, of how requests and responses work and, and time. And I mean, it brings all the joy of, of threads to the web. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Juggling chainsaws. Exactly. But but yeah, no, I think that's that's kind of a a good place to kind of start closing things as well, right? Of of you know this this old technology, we're, we waited long enough, and it, it solved the problem for us. <laughs> and so it's like I could have spent you know three three months building something with Socket IO and Node and whatnot, and it would now I just waited a year, and now hopefully it's going to be a lot easier for me to just let Django do it, and then. That'll be a, a stable kind of thing that I can build on. One of my favorite blog posts ever is by uh, Ted Zubia, I believe is how you pronounce his name. Mm -hmm. he, he's a cool guy. He's a he's a member of the Python community, uh, but he was notorious for this blog, which, which was very rude in tone. You know, we're very not aggressive, I guess. I don't know. It was it was hilarious, and uh, it's called Taco Bell Programming. The blog post. And it's basically like, you know, how you can use all this new crazy technology to do X, Y, and Z, or you can just run this one line of bash where you send some stuff in through Xargs and everything just magically works, you know, <laughs> with, con with concurrency and threading and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so yeah, he calls that Taco Bell programming, which is basically Unix has solved all this stuff for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, I guess 30 is probably the right answer. And, uh, you know, all these new things that we think we're solving that are exciting and new are, are just like old stuff that has been working great for years. Mm -hmm. Just just let the operating system handle it, basically. Right. Docker is the new jail. Like <laughs> the new jail uh, with the BSD jails. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I actually don't know a huge amount about BSD jails, but right. Yeah. Like containerization and all that stuff. Yeah. It is not new technology. It is just now. You know, somebody's actually put a user interface on it that makes it, you know, sexier to market. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, OS X did the same thing uh, oh, yeah. with the, the release of this. I always forget the names. Uh, I guess the last operating system, they all the um, all the apps are jailed by default, 
and they the the current the Darwin kernel has a containerization system built into it, uh, and it works really well. And in the latest OS that uh, I guess came out in the last six months, um, it runs in this mode called rootless, where there's no root user. You know, there's no super user. Basically, everything is a level of container. Uh, so there's no actual way to get full root access to the system, uh, which is really cool. But that makes some weird hacks not work. So you can turn it off. Uh, I did that, and within within uh, two or three days, my system stopped working. So <laughs> I, I think those containers are also safeguards for the apps themselves from not harming each other. You know, sure. I mean? You can be a lot less, a lot more reckless if you're not worried about you know. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's like writing in a Docker container, right? It's like, who cares where you put files? Just blow it away, and the file system disappears. <laughs> yeah, just RMF dash R on the, you know, yeah. on the whole system. There is it's just a mini system. All right, well, I, we covered all of our intended topics. Is uh, is there anything else that comes to mind before we close the show? I think I'm good. I think we're already at the you know a commute to work and back length, so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's see. No, no more sales pitches. Yeah, I don't think I have any either. Yeah, buy buy All the right. book. Come to the conference. Talk to your boss about supporting open source. <laughs> and go check out my album. Yeah. <laughs> um. So yeah, thank you for. Oh, you're the co-host. You're not a guest. Yeah. So <clears throat> thank you audience for joining eric and i it has been a pleasure thank you eric for filling in for alex permanently i mean <laughs> alex is permanently gone uh we'll probably have a different co-host next week nice next week is is ambitious but <laughs> oh did i say next week wow i wasn't even thinking about that uh, it, within the next two years <laughs> right next next year yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for putting it together, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, people. If you're if you're this far, you must have gotten some value out of it. So. <laughs> yeah, and you can uh, follow Eric uh, at Eric Holscher, right? Yep. Cool. And I'm at Kenneth Wrights. Sweet. Thank you very much. Have a good day. <laughs>